Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast is my gift of service to Alcoholics Anonymous and strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. On today's podcast, my interview with Bob W., another close friend whom I first met when he got sober in 1999. A Vietnam veteran from a family fraught with alcoholism, Bob's post-war progression into the disease of alcoholism accompanied a long and hard-driven business career in the banking industry. But by the time he had raised three children and accumulated a great deal of material success, Bob's alcoholism and other addictive behaviors severely bit into his home life. His marriage unraveled, and his relationship with his adult children deteriorated. Completely dispirited by his late fifties, Bob contemplated the same deadly exit plan his father had taken some twenty-five years earlier. Fortunately, his turning point was toward sobriety in AA. Interestingly, Bob's sobriety through active participation in the program had little impact on his other addictive behavior, which he struggled with for years after he got sober from alcohol. But with the help of a sustained AA program, Bob finally surrendered his other addiction on his road to recovery. There's a lot more to this story that you'll hear shortly. After nearly 14 years of West Coast AA, Bob made it back to Houston in 2016, which is where I caught up with him. Though divorced and estranged from his family in California, in the past five years, he has rebuilt a new and happier life for himself. His story is one that I greatly admire. I think you will, too. So settle back and enjoy the next hour of my interview with my good friend and AA brother, Bob W. My name is Bob, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you could be here. It's a delight, Howard. It's a delight. What's great about it is that you and I have known each other for... Well over 20 years now. Yes. Uh, You got sober. I first met you at the retreat center, I believe. No, actually, uh, the uh, Rosewood Hospital meeting, uh, Martha's meeting. um, Yeah. It's the first place where we didn't necessarily connect very much, but I remember you from that meeting. And then I saw you in lots of different meetings over the years. And, of course, the uh, um, I I went to four, um, four retreats my first year. Of sobriety, I just you know I obsess about everything, so I <laughs> I had to get this thing thoroughly, and it was it was wonderful because they, each one of those is a crash course, yeah, in the program. Yeah, yeah, I've gone to a lot of retreats over the years. In fact, there was a period of about thirty years there where I'd gone to one every year, except for one year when my daughter was had just been born uh, back in the back in ninety one, I believe. And but I tried to get to the April retreat every year. It's a great way to get recharged and we go through all 12 steps. And I'm sure I probably saw you at one of those retreats or yes. if not more than that. So you've been sober now uh, 20... 21 years. 21 years. 22 next month. So your sobriety date is... Uh, July 30th, 1999. And you got sober here in Houston. I did. What was going on in the days and weeks and months leading up to your getting sober? I got to the point where I'd been trying to stop drinking. I've been trying to deal with it lots of different ways, mm-hmm. therapy, exercise, all kinds of things. Um, and, I, and I just couldn't. And I had one last binge night hmm. that it was frightening is what, what I did. I got home okay, but it, mm-hmm. it was... Uh, Amazing. When I thought I was in the program, um, and all I did was drink myself into a blackout, mm. um, woke up the next morning, the car was in the street. Mm. Um, I don't recall the oh, big chunks of the evening, and, mm-hmm. and I realized I had to I had to do it serious. And, and I, different than others, I just said, all right, I'm going to meetings. I'm going to connect with everybody in the program. I'm just going to try to shut down my brain. I, I had 
I had no confidence that anything would work, so I just had to do everything I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Uh, found a sponsor relatively quickly and really didn't. I went to a 110 meetings in that those first 90 days. And, mm-hmm. Uh, retreats were very, very helpful mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because of the intensity. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know when I got to the point where the risk had began to diminish. Mm-hmm. But uh, Howard, I I never necessarily liked the taste of the substance. Um, mm-hmm. I got over craving it relatively quickly. But the sensation between the second and third scotch. Yeah. When everything turned beautiful, yeah, yeah, all problems dissolved, mm-hmm. everything happened. Those those issues continue to today. Um, mm-hmm. My body just desperately craved that sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it always that way for you when when you first started drinking? Did you get that sensation the first number of times you drank, and it followed you through life, or was that a cultivated uh, feeling over the years? It, it built over time. I'm sure. Let me let me back up just a little bit sure, if you could. I, I think yeah. I, uh, you know, the as I was thinking about our conversation today, um, I was genetically and environmentally set up for this disease yeah. from birth. Huh. I grew up in a household with very little nurturing. Mm-hmm. Um, at an early age, I learned how to hide. I learned how to 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 uh, obey all the rules so no, I wouldn't get in, in trouble and. Mm-hmm. Had built to the point where uh, success was necessary, uh, incredible effort and success was necessary to prove I had a right to be alive, hmm. and that set me up for the whole my my whole life. Who were uh, you? Who were you trying to prove that to? Well, initially my mother, your mother, but it turned out to be literally everybody. I mean, really? it, was, it was just, it was just the 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 whole. I had this sensation that that you know you just you're just not good enough. You're just not. You know. Uh, Did you get that from an early age? I mean, from a very small child. I think I had that from pre-consciousness. Really, uh, but I, I, and I have some evidence of it early on. But no, it started showing up in school. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and the the effort always was to prove. I'd come home from school with my report card, and my mother would look at it and say, "What did Richie Fagan and George, ha- George Haas get?" <laughs> the, the three of us were always the number one in the class. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so it was always a competition. <laughs> but alcohol and uh, uh, my sexual acting out provided uh, medication yeah. that, that I just grew to, to absolutely crave. So over the last, got sober in 99, I'd say for the last 30 years probably, uh, the giving up drinking turned out to be impossible. I, I once had 30 days... Um, I wasn't in the program, but but I, I relapsed because I just um, somebody asked me if I wanted anything to drink, and I said yes, and I didn't even think about it. I just responded. So, um, so was this the thirty years prior to your coming into AA that yeah. you were trying? So, from nineteen sixty nine until nineteen ninety nine, you were at various times attempting to get and stay sober. Uh, and, and the the need to get. To stop the behavior, and it kept getting worse. Okay, okay. Um, was always there. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps. You know, the drinking was really bad. I spent uh, um, a year in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We, we, a long, too long a story to tell here. But we, we, uh, the battalion I was in, we ended up with a a whole giant supply of beer that we had uh, literally stolen from the. Mm-hmm. somebody somewhere so i mean everybody got drunk every night it just was you know it was it was constant so so it built up um but i'd say yes i went to work in 1966 and the need to achieve the need to succeed started relatively quickly so 69 would be about the right the right age and when were you in vietnam 1965 66 okay so that was before the really bad part of the yeah. war the uh, the peak of the war was sixty eight. Right. Um, mine was, I say, relatively uh, benign. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of people have said, you know, when people are shooting at you, that's not a benign <laughs> <It's> environment. Not <laughs> benign. <laughs> but yeah. but I didn't get. Uh, I wasn't uh, seriously under fire for long periods of time. Would you say you came back with uh, PTSD? Were you affected <laughs> by that experience in a way that later showed up for you? The answer is yes. Yeah. There's something called survivor's guilt. Uh-huh. I ended up with a relatively easy 
job um, when I got to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and it kept me out of a lot of the firing. Mm-hmm. And for 30 years, I said to myself, you know, you're just lily-livered. You know, you were a platoon leader, mm-hmm. infantry uh, trained platoon leader. You should have raised your hand and made them give you a platoon in combat because that's what you were supposed to do. Hmm. It didn't happen. I mean, I, my, the, the job I had, I said, was relatively benign. In an AA meeting about 15 years ago, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. And I actually shared for the first time that, that this uh, anger at myself, this resentment because I didn't raise my hand and go, in, and go into combat um, mm-hmm. uh, had r- really bothered me when a lot of my buddies did. So in, uh, um, I, I thought about it. I said, you know, if I, had, if I had done that, one of four things would have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have been killed. Mm-hmm. I would have been uh, had some of my men killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have been in the midst of some really severe situations that were things or nothing would have happened. Hmm. And of those four, the one with the lowest probability was the last. Right. So, uh, it, it was because um, a lot of my buddies, I, I don't know a lot of people who were killed, but uh, a lot of my buddies had really severe, severe experiences. Mm. Howard, that set me up. You know, if I can be a Marine officer, if I can go to Vietnam, you know, I can do anything. So it set me up to to strive to achieve with greater and greater effort. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the survivor's guilt, too. And I wondered what part that played into the into that frame of mind of wanting to wanting to achieve and succeed and that drive forward. Was there a connection between those two, would you say? Um, it's probably that that fear, that anger, that uh, sadness in me that I had not raised my hand mm. and that it uh, probably spurred me on to w- work even harder. My higher power, who has been with me my whole life, then is the one who kept me out of combat. Because if I'd come back after a year as a platoon leader, you know, I'd have never made it to 50. I mean, it huh. was just uh, my brain was too set up. So. I developed this need for uh, addictive substances yeah. to tame, to, to quiet this massively uh, mm-hmm. chaotic brain mm-hmm. um, from, a, from a relatively early age. And that just built, kept it built over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And in the last 10 years, in the 90s, before I got sober, it was, uh, it was awful. I mean, it was just, it was uh, not a lot of very serious events, but you know, uh, regular blackouts, yeah, uh, constant drinking, unable to get through the day without uh, without drinking. Yeah. So uh, Vietnam is not necessarily a, a big part of my alcoholic history, um, but uh, you know the fact that I elected to go into the Marine Corps, I did not necessarily have the skills to be a Marine officer, but I went in and I exerted massive effort and turned out to to do really well hmm. there. Um, so you were, you were driven, you were driven up to that point. And was that something that followed you through school and that need to achieve? Was that a, was that a characteristic yeah. of yours from the time you were a child? Yes, absolutely. The need to achieve. Uh, I used to say to my uh, people who worked for me, I said, you, you want to succeed in business? Figure out what your boss's expectations are of you and then constantly <laughs> beat them. Yeah, yeah. Constantly beat them. And then and that's exactly what I did. I mean, I, I would. I, I, if I went for a new boss, I'd figure out what he really wanted and I'd be sure that and uh, the things that he held dear, I would excel. Um, so you were probably really good in school as I was in finding out what it was exactly that the teacher wanted to hear from me on any given report. Yeah. And I'd write it for them, not for me. And yeah. I'd always get good grades because it's what they wanted, not what I wanted. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so this, 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 this need to achieve, this urge to, mm-hmm. to uh, perform mm-hmm. um, just kept going on and on and on. And then by the time the 90s, now I'm in my 50s, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just really running out of gas. And uh, so the drinking, the acting out uh, sexually and, and, and other um, – uh, obsessions, mm-hmm. you know, just went through the roof. I had run in high school and college, uh, so I decided to run marathons in the in the mid seventies. I ended mm-hmm. up running twenty five marathons over wow. fifteen years. Wow! Um, 
somebody said to me one time, you know, if you, why would you run a one? Why would you want to run more than one marathon? Uh-huh. And I said, oh, you got to beat, you got to beat the time. You got to constantly beat your time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you you were competing, a, you were competing against yourself in previous times every time yeah. you ran. Now, when you got out of, so you got out of high school, did you go right into the Marines after high school? No, no, I was uh, educated by the Jesuits, went to Holy Cross. Okay. um, And I joined into a uh, a reserve officer training program. It wasn't ROTC, but it was something like it the Marines had. Uh And I started my active duty when I graduated in 1963. Okay, so you got out of the Marines. Was that a two- or three-year commitment? Three-year commitment. Three years. So once you got out of the Marines, what did the next several years look like for you? Well, I, I got married in 64. We had a child when I was in uh, Vietnam. Uh, I came back to New York, which is where I lived and where I grew up. And, um, uh, and I went, you know, everybody in New York works for a bank or something. So uh-huh. I went and interviewed all the banks. Huh, huh. And uh, this is a great story. Bankers Trust, which where I would. Uh, their offer was seventy six hundred dollars a year. Oh my! All the others were seventy five hundred dollars. <laughs> so I went to Bankers Trust. <laughs> I, I think it was a typo or something. <laughs> but it's it's fascinating how I in the, in the analysis I've done and the work I've done mm-hmm. in recovery to, to go back and look at those how that pattern of massive effort to succeed, yeah, you know, just was constantly behind uh, everything everything I did. did. Now, as you were succeeding, were you steadily moving up the, the corporate ladder at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what um, did that ascent look like for you from the start? Well, in banking, I was in the corporate finance section. So you, as you got, you know, the, you started as an assistant treasurer and then mm-hmm. an assistant vice president and then yeah. vice president. It's about two years between those. Um, those are just titles and, yeah. and, and, and salaries and things. They moved me to Houston in 1974. Uh-huh. They opened an office here. I opened the office, and uh, and then in, I liked we liked Houston a lot, so I quit the bank uh, in '78 and joined First City Bank here, yeah. uh, and that's where I, I started in uh, roles that were where I had people reporting to me. I see. Now, had you more children by that point? Yes, uh, <laughs> two children in the three years since I, that I got back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. My wife and I were, I guess, pretty well suited because we had. Three children before our fourth wedding anniversary, <laughs> and okay. uh, and I spent a year in Vietnam during that time. <laughs> so, so we wow. we uh, took took issues to stop the production line. So um, the kids were pretty close in age. Kids, then. Were, kids were all eighteen months apart. Eighteen yeah. months apart. We wow. moved to Houston, and they grew up here. Did they? And my initially, Howard, it looked like. You know, Bob didn't drink more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Just sometimes he can't hold his liquor and yeah. different things would be said. I was always the guy who drank more than anybody else and I always got a little sloppier. And the family was in complete denial. I mean, they saw it. My wife hated it. But uh, she would, to this day, doubts that I was ever really was an alcoholic. Did she ever say anything to you about it? Did she ever try and encourage oh, you to God. cut down or stop? She didn't have the guts to uh, necessarily stop me. But uh-huh. um you know, the normal refrain the next day was, I just don't understand why anybody would let themselves get in that condition. Okay. And I would always say, well, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, we grew up in New York in a very old world environment. Right. And the, the rule was, you don't, you know, the five rules of dysfunctional families. Yeah. Don't talk, don't listen, don't feel, don't fight, don't leave. Right. Uh, you know, you, you never left. She should have left me in the first 10 years, but uh, uh, but never did. Do you think that would have made a difference uh, in terms of your drinking and the, no. the amount of time it took for you to get sober? Howard, the effect of alcohol and the other behaviors yeah. was so critical to my well-being. Hmm. I mean, I, I still marvel at how I got sober and how the program worked for me in so many different ways in 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony P. was my... Uh, was my sponsor and yeah. uh, God, we just we we talked for ever in so many different ways. And I I wanted to get sober, but I can't lay out a uh, rational process of how it all happened. I just one day at a time, you know, just just okay. I'm not going to drink today. Just one day at a time until it started to stick. Yeah. After six to nine months. Yeah, I got that. 
So once you came down in 74, you have the three children 18 months apart. Were you steadily drinking at that time, or was it still social drinking? What, what did your drinking behavior look like for the, the succeeding years? I, 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 I had a few beers every night. Uh-huh. Um, it was mostly social drinking. Really? Uh-huh. But there were a, lo- a lot of the social drinking turned out to be excessive I see. as well. Yeah, yeah. So how long did that go on before the drinking became really noticeable to your family and maybe to you as, as an emerging problem? The heavy drinking nights, uh, and they weren't binges necessarily, but they got to be relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they just were always there. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. He was. Uh, from his earliest days, he had uh, blackouts. It lasted days. Um, mm. He um, he ended up committing suicide in the disease. He oh, tried to no. get sober right after my brother and I were born, and he had, he had some uh, periods on the wagon, but the last, he died in 75, and the last 10 or 15 years were pretty bad. So you were already a, an adult with children and a wife when he committed suicide? Yeah, yeah. There was this, so I was 33. My kids were all in their uh, preteens. Were you close to your dad at that point or not? You know, I've, I've struggled with that. Uh, I can't say I have this massive love connection with him right i respected him initially i respected him yeah i uh thought he was bright he was very brilliant but he couldn't hold a job i mean he went from law he was on his uh, self-employed for a lot of periods of time mm-hmm. but um when he, when he committed suicide i just was very very mad hmm. um mm-hmm. i sat with my brother at the funeral and i said you know that son of a bee I can't believe he did that. Uh, look at that. He's got, he's got five grandchildren. He's got all this stuff to live for. And then that was 75. And then I f- spent 20 years replicating his behavior. Yeah. It, it, it really started to take off yeah. after he, he died. And of course, I was, I was uh, moving up in the business world, uh, more responsibility, mm-hmm. more pressure. Uh, I always say there are three events that enabled my alcoholism. The first was the Marine Corps, just because it was so intense. Sure. Secondly, uh, my father dying. And then the third, the collapse of the energy business in Houston, because by that time I was the head of the energy uh, lending group. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, big chunks of our portfolio just became at risk because um, uh, nobody could make any money. You know, that was in the early 80s. This, it started in 82. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit bottom in 87. Um, 87. So there was a five-year period there of decline yeah. where did that exacerbate your drinking throughout that period? I mean, your father commits suicide at 75. The downturn in the oil business is, let's say, six to eight years later. Within that period of time, so you went from drinking over your dad and a lot of that being about that to drinking over what was going on in business. Yeah, Howard, I can't. I can't necessarily say I have evidence that there was a connection right between right. those I, it's just that as my life got more intense as uh, uh, pressure built up uh-huh. as the the, the 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 need to achieve became more and more difficult yeah uh, the need for a, uh, the medication effect uh, of all of my behaviors it uh, uh-huh. uh, became uh, really really intense so it it started to come apart in the 80s, yeah. uh, when we were working through the uh, decline of the energy business, I ended up as head of the workout division. I had all the bad loans in the bank. Mm. Um, and we'd go down to Nick's Fish Market, you know, every evening. Mm. You know, and it was a, they had a beautiful bar, and we'd just mm. sit there and uh, not necessarily every evening, but but a lot of them and just kind of rehash you know, what was happening during the day and so forth. And uh, It sounds like, first of all, you were putting a lot of hours every day, including yeah. those hours after work at Nick's. What kind of effect did that have on your family? You, it sounds like you were not home all that much during that time. My wife buried a lot of, of that, so she she would complain if something happened. Yeah. Um, you know, she'd tell me, what if I got drunk? I don't know why. I don't understand how anybody would want to get in that condition uh-huh. um, uh, towards the end of the 80s it would happen at uh, Christmas holidays she'd say well here's another Christmas holiday you ruined for me oh, uh, wow. and so she was she was uh, upset by it in denial but 
Howard, I was just a screaming uh, guy who, you know, if there weren't any repercussions, if there wasn't any uh, uh-huh. um, bad result, you know, she could say anything she wanted to say. I wasn't going to stop. And so we started moving apart uh, very actively in the 80s. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and it got really bad in the 90s. And so the marriage was a marriage in name only. I see. But uh, she just wasn't strong enough to have done what would have been necessary. And yeah, uh, I always say to people, you know, who are struggling with uh, women struggling with a bad husband, I said, look, there's only one solution here. Throw a shit out on the lawn and change the locks. <laughs> uh, and that's worked for more than a few people I know. But but, you know, at the end of the day, if you're achieving at work and if you're bringing home the big fat paychecks and you living in the big homes and driving the big cars, that's a tough thing to criticize, irrespective of what's going along with it. Did oh, yeah. you find that to be the case? I think that was probably part of her uh, ability or willingness to tolerate all of it was uh-huh. that, uh, yes, we, you know, we were constantly moving into a higher standard of living uh-huh. because of, of, of my success. The uh, alcohol impacted my success, but not very, but not very dramatically. Uh, I hmm. never... You know, I never had a situation where I got called down for. <laughs> there are situations where my behavior became a lore of the of the institution, and people would talk tell stories <laughs> of of it. Bob uh, at the Christmas party and that uh, kind of thing. <laughs> we were at, we were uh, with a client one time. This is while I'm in New York. This is the uh, mid '70s, and um, we were making a round of all the bars and a lot of the. Uh, the sex-oriented bars uh, as well. And uh, we finally got to the 2 o'clock or something, and we um, had to get back. We were about 50 blocks from the uh, from, – <laughs> and I was a big runner at the time. Uh-huh. So we couldn't find a cab, and I said, oh, screw this. I'm just, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> so I ran back to the hotel. <laughs> that story went around the bank for years. While you were drunk, you did that kind yeah, of yes, mileage? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I, I mean, I could, I could have fallen down. I just, I, I don't remember it. I mean, hmm. I just don't remember. You were just a guy in a business suit running along, yeah. uh, along the road. There, you don't huh? see a lot of guys in business suits, you know, just <laughs> running uh, down in Manhattan, especially at two in the morning. But, oh. <laughs> but I, uh, no, I, my behavior, um, both when I was drinking and when I was uh, uh, not drinking necessarily, could be outrageous. I mean, there's a lot of. There's a story you guys heard of me chasing a ref across the floor of the Astrodome uh, after one uh, Texas high school uh, football playoff um, yeah. because he'd made a bad call. On, on your uh, son. Uh, yeah. On well, son. my son was, uh, yeah, it was, was uh, on the team. And uh, uh-huh. it was a bad call. We lost the game as a result of that call. And, uh, you know, 20,000 people in the Astrodome, a lot of uh, uh, family, friends, business associates and everything. Mm-hmm. Gun goes off and I take off across the field. To uh, tell, give that uh, referee a piece of my mind. <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah, I've, I've heard that story over the years. It never, it never ceases to raise a smile. Uh, it's just, it's, so so you, you, you mentioned that about your son, and I understand and heard about the impact that, that the drinking had on on your wife. How about your How about your children? All right, let me let me uh, go back here a little bit too, because um, I moved back to Houston in, in uh, 2016. Right. Uh, we had been in California for 12 year, years. My wife wanted to move out there. So when I was no longer a full-time job, I we went out there. Uh, uh, it was 2002. Um, I really never liked California at all. No. The meetings weren't necessarily uh, as good, and I missed a lot. of. I came to Houston a lot. So in 2016, I decided... Uh, I really wanted to spend more time in Houston. Right. So I said to my wife, look, I'm going to get an apartment in Houston and, and uh, I'll, I'll live here, but I'm going to spend most of my time in Houston. Mm-hmm. My kids heard that and they went ballistic. Dad's abandoning mom. We got to circle the wagons, protect mom. Um, uh, I, so I ended up getting divorced. Right. Uh, and the divorce was finalized about a year later. Mm-hmm. I believed, though my home when I grew up was such a, dire place mm-hmm. and I was going to have the happiest and best home life ever when I when I grew up so I, see. I 
did I went out of my way to make it a very nice uh, place for my wife and kids and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But um, my acting out kept getting worse and worse. And I never understood or never recognized that it was having a significant impact on them. Mm. Um, and uh, when I did this, I think that they just said, well, that's it. That's the end of it. You know, the only thing we needed dad to do was take care of mom. He's not going to do that now. You know, mm-hmm. he'll be gone a lot of the time. So uh, we're, we're going to circle the wagons. So these are adult children who are saying this after all those years of them growing up and either you not being there or you being there and being drunk. They were in their 50s yeah. in 99. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my, there were 20 years of bad drinking before that. Um, I always was drinking too much. The kids would have this thing if they were at a friend's at a, at a family party or something. Uh-huh. One of them would say, get dad's keys, get the keys. Hmm. So one of them would come up and stick his hand in my pocket, take the keys. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't drive home. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so there, there were there were probably you know dozens and dozens of these kinds of situations, Howard. So when uh, when I uh, made the decision in 2016, uh-huh. you know they their their only thing was take care of mom and goodbye dad. We, and to this day that we don't I, I don't have any contact with with uh, with them very did they, much at did all. Did they feel like you before you left for Texas? Did they believe or was there a sense that you were taking care of her all along or it was it just that when you moved to Texas, that was the straw that broke the camel's back? My wife had better standard of living than anybody in her family, mm-hmm. a lot of her friends and so forth. Yeah. So uh, I, I absolutely took, took care of her, of her. I mean, there was a it was a standard of living that she enjoyed. Right. You know, we were nice cars. And uh, and then when our kids kids had gotten married and they had, uh, uh, we had grandchildren, five grandchildren, you know, she loved uh, that in, in so many different ways. Where were you doing all of that? Uh, well, I was uh, in between uh, California and Houston. Yeah, I get that. But but from, from when they were, as they were younger and they were going through school and then graduating and doing what they were doing and getting married... Where were you in the in the I universe? Was, I was generally around. I you mean, were. We, we, I traveled a lot all the time. I mean, from a, from earliest days, it was when I first started traveling. It was you know every third week, from Sunday night to Friday night. Wow! Um, and wow. Uh, we were covering Michigan and Ohio as a for corporate finance. So yeah, I always traveled. I was uh, I was gone a lot. Um, so you could drink. Was, you could drink. Um, Virtually whenever you wanted with impunity yeah, yeah. while you were on the road, and I and frankly I did that eventually did that at home. You did it was you know, it was just it was just awful and so mm. So I think that uh, they had been experiencing this behavior for most of their lives, and they probably mm. all had incidents in their head that they could think about where something really bad happened, and they were involved in some fashion. Sure, and. And I'd never put all of that together till I started doing the work uh, in 2017, 2016, 2017. I was working with uh, Tony P and then and, yeah. uh, and then Dan E. Yeah. Um, and we went through, and I just all of a sudden I just started realizing, oh my God, they, I thought we had this wonderful family uh-huh. because we had all this stuff and they had this, and, and no, the, rever- the reverse was true. All of them were saying all the time. You know, we, we got to take care of mom. We got to yeah. protect mom. We got to. Yeah. Uh, so when I left, it was uh, it was absolute. Um, yeah. That's a great tragedy for me. There's a lot of sadness associated with I'm it. I'm sure. I'm um, sure. With all of you and with the with the program and and uh, the the network of fellows that uh, we all create in the program. Yeah. Uh, I've learned how to. Uh, I've learned. If I had not decided to move, if I'd stayed in California, yeah. The, the piece I left out is, in the latter years in California, behavior patterns started to show up. I was drinking, yeah, but behavior patterns that I that did exist when I was drinking, yeah. So uh, rage events where I got really so mad and, and was raging, or uh-huh. when I would excuse a particular uh, event that was uh, was obvious. And I would excuse it in my head while I was drinking. I just didn't even think about it very I much. See. But I could see see that this was 
deteriorating that that California wasn't providing a, a really firm base. So I moved here uh, uh, to get my program back in, in, in track. And if I had not, if I'd stayed in California, you know, uh, sometime in the uh, the last uh, three or four years, some bad things would have happened. So now, I've left out one very significant piece of all yeah, this. Yeah, sure. Is that uh, I was also acting out sexually for a, a lot of this. Uh-huh. And from the 80s on, there was a increasing level of activity uh-huh. uh, with uh, mostly professional women, you know, mm-hmm. women who... Uh, saw sex as a profession. Right. Um, and then when I got sober in 99, I stopped that uh-huh. for about four or five years. But we were in California, and I think the the pressure there, I completely relapsed in 2004, and the next 10 years were were, were just awful, huh. god-awful. So I, even while you were staying sober? I was, I, had not, I was not drinking alcohol. Right. But I clearly was using uh, sex as a way to medicate feelings. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you were acting out at that point, yes. uh, even though you were sober. I'm trying to kind of wrap my mind around putting this together, the time frames here. So you're, you're drinking, you're, ra- you're raising up in the corporate world. What was going on in 1999, around 1999, when you first got sober, that made you come to AA in the first place? I was the head of the Houston office right. for a good bit of time. We uh, had a young girl working for us who was 23, uh, 24. Um, mm-hmm. And she came to me one day and she said, uh, I want to take you to breakfast. Mm-hmm. So she took me to breakfast and she reveals to me that she's an alcoholic and that she's been sober for five years uh-huh. you know, since her late teens. Uh, and she talks all about this thing. And I said to her, Gee, that's interesting, Susanna. Um, you know, I probably ought to look at that. She mm-hmm. said, yes. Huh. The whole purpose of her was to try to do this. So she had me go uh, to see Mary November 5th, 1998. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm telling her. And she just was laughing. I mean, she's laughing because I had all the lies. Uh-huh. You know, I really am not that serious. I only drink beer and wine. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, all of these different things. Yeah. And she's literally just laughing. And she just said... Uh, you're in the right place. And she got me going to meetings. Now, this is 98, early 99. Mm-hmm. and I, But I really didn't stop drinking. I had slips here and there. And then uh, on uh, July 29th, 1999, I had this really bad uh, blackout event. Mm-hmm. Um, when I woke up the next morning, I just said, you know, your, your father killed himself. You're mm-hmm. going to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you, somehow... The events that you put yourself in the midst of will cause you to die. Um, you'll abandon your family. Mm-hmm. Everything that you hold dear will be gone. You got to get it. You got to get it. Up. So mm-hmm. I literally just said, I'm going to meetings. I actually moved out of the house. Um, my wife never understood that, but I just, I had to change everything. I right. Told her. Yeah. Um, you know, she never understood it. I was, I don't think dad's an alcoholic. If he would just learn to, to do things in moderation. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't see the disease. They, they saw the yeah. your weakness of will or your lack of desire. And weakness of will. It's just the same old thing that, that we, we all encounter. Um, so you moved out. You, uh, you, you started in with the program in, nine, in July of 99. Yeah. What were the first few years like for you uh, in AA? Were you, were you in the middle of the program? Were you hovering around the perimeter? What, where were you in terms uh, of the I went program? To, I went to regular meetings. Yeah. I made friends in the program. Uh-huh. Uh, I read everything. I got all the tapes. Mm-hmm. You know the, the AA in its earliest days. I just, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an analytical guy anyway. So I, you know, I just analyzed the hell out of everything. So I, I did that, and I really got to understand it in so many different ways. But I just basically built a life, 
inside, you know, the AA umbrella. Um, Did you work the steps during those I, yeah, years? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got Tony P as my sponsor within two or three months. Uh, mm. We started working the steps. Now, I, I worked the steps pretty religiously, but in terms of what I know today and what's happened, it was weak. It just I just didn't have enough experience or understand everything mm-hmm. well enough yeah. to, uh, to, to know how much more I had done. So I never really did the, the – clearly, I should have gone somewhere, you know, and had a family week or something and brought the family into it because they never understood it. Yeah. Uh, that's what that has to do. Uh, and I moved back into the house after six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looked like, uh, you know, we had um, – I had achieved the level of sobriety and, and restored the, the family. Within six months of getting sober? Within six months, yeah. yeah. But my brain really hadn't, you right. know, I was still still in denial a lot of those. I wonder if when you look back at that, do you see that six months in AA versus all the years prior, do you see that as kind of an unrealistic expectation looking back? Did you have a, was your expectation much broader than it really should have been given what had gone on? Expectation of? Yeah, of, of everything getting back to normal. Um I, I really didn't think about any yeah. of that stuff. I mean, I I, because I thought about it so much, I just said, you know, if you if you start analyzing this thing, you're going to talk yourself back into getting in. You know, the capacity for you know, screwed up thinking was just so strong. So you moved back in with the with the wife and family yeah. after six months. What was life it, like at that point? It, it seemed to be okay. You know, really? I was behaving myself, mm-hmm. and I mean, uh, two years later, <laughs> we were out in California visiting her sister. Mm-hmm. So this is July of 2002. I said to her, we had driven out, and I said, um, just sitting around with mm-hmm. my sister-in-law, and her, when do you want to go back home? And she said, I don't. I said, what hmm. do you mean? I don't want to go back home. Hmm. I want to stay here. Mm-hmm. I said, what are you talking about? I want to move here. Hmm. And she said, what? Uh, I mean, it was so incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, well, we'll talk about that later. And for about two months, we talked, and then I said, well, she wants to live in California. That's something she always liked, California. Mm-hmm. I was in the Marine Corps in California before I went to Vietnam. Okay. So we, she really liked it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we went ahead and moved, and um, that was a mistake. Um, if I hadn't said yes, would she have gone by herself? I don't know. If she had gone by herself, that would have been a good thing. We moved out uh, to California, and I maintained that sobriety. Uh, at least in the sexual acting out uh, for two more years, and then I just completely crashed. And that was uh, so. When you went out to California after being sober, so you got sober in '99. You moved to California in 2002. Mm-hmm. So for the three years you were here, you were getting well established, well grounded, well centered in the AA program. Yes. You go out to California. What did your program look like in the first couple of years out in California? Well, I actually did. Uh, Make a connection. Turns out we were in uh, Thousand Oaks, which was a suburb of mm-hmm. L.A. Sure. There were hundreds of meetings, you know, within a half an hour drive. So I found a, a meeting network. Mm-hmm. Um, like they've got some really good friends, um, mm-hmm. guys that go out to lunch with and we talk sobriety. And sure. I did, really did a good job. Uh-huh. Um, my view of California is is that the, the, the meetings change yeah. regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the good meetings I went to started to come apart. Mm. The, we had uh, one was an eleventh step meeting, sure, and it was spectacular. And then all of a sudden, a group decides they want to make it a regular speaker meeting, so they call a group conscience, and they, you know, we stopped as an eleventh step meeting. Mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, and a lot of people who were whose whose sobriety, in my mind, you know, was uh, was more social than than anything else. Mm. Howard, my view is that this disease is deadly. Oh, yeah. That the only outcome of continued drinking is an untimely, ugly death in which you abandon everybody you care about. Yeah. And because I experienced that. Yeah. And and, and, even though I wasn't close to my father. Yeah. That the fact that he had done that just became this cancer in my brain. Yeah. It was always until you to this day. I mean, I think about it. An idea can slip in out of nowhere that says, "Well, you know, you can always do what your father did." Uh, yeah, now did you that, don't you don't hold that. I mean, I dismiss it immediately. Did that did that enter into your mind during during that period of time? 
Uh, not necessarily any more than than than, okay. than normal. Uh, I relapsed in that in 2004, having been sober for five years, and then the sexual acting out, and that got me pretty. Were you working a program around that as no. well? Okay, I was in in Houston, a very good, but but I did not find. I'd actually looked from in California, and the the people in the room were not people I wanted to be be with at all. And I just yeah, I'm I'm curious about. So you're sober for let's say five years before you before you kind of slipped into that other behavior that you had been able to somehow not engage in during your first five years of sobriety. Right. Our program dictates an awful lot of the way we act in the other parts of our life, and if we've got another obsession or a compulsion going on somewhere else, a good program will often enter into that from the standpoint of what we're thinking about while we're doing that. Yeah. We're thinking about our program. We're thinking about integrity. We're thinking about all of the things that we've learned in AA. What was going on in your AA program at five years that made it possible for you to start engaging that behavior again? You know, there's something called compartmentalized thinking Yeah, where your brain uh, can get into a mode where it's contemplating something that doesn't fit other parts of your life, yeah. Uh, but you forget all that and mm. you just focus on it. And that's exactly what happens. Is that right? I think that the trying to, missing the program in Houston, trying mm. to replicate it out there, not wanting to be there, uh, my relationship with my wife having deteriorated to nothing. Uh, my wife's family were out there and there were more, there was not a lot of people in her family that I got along with. I see. So I didn't have, I couldn't build a network out there near as strong as Houston. I see. Uh -huh. So um, I remember, and I've said this, you know, that, that if I have a relapse, it'll happen in an instant. And I'll go from never, never, never to uh, why wouldn't I? Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly what happened in that. Uh, it was one day I was thinking about it. And I said, you know, Oh, that woman in Toronto. I wonder if I could go see her. I mean, mm. I just... Uh, and <laughs> Was that quick? And I was planning the trip within hours. Huh. Um, huh. And uh, So you didn't play the tape through, or there was no tape to play through at that there point? Was no, there was no... <laughs> there was a big gap in the tape, you know, the, the 18-minute <laughs> gap in the tape. The Nixon tapes, yeah, I get that. <laughs> so, and I was exactly right. It just was... Uh, I, could, I know exactly where I was, and I... Could, See my brain; it was just, it was just incredible. And I've used that meeting to said, you know, you you, you got to be so careful. You know, we we can be uh, sober for a long period of time. I the one the great thing about meetings out there, there were there were a lot of uh, Hollywood people. Sure. And you'd see what. And I met one guy who was a writer, uh -huh. and I was talking to him, and he said, uh, "Well, I'm sober for such and such, but uh, this is the second go around." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Yeah, I was sober for ten years." And I went into a Ralph's supermarket, and I was walking out, and I saw a whole bunch of those little bottles. Yeah. Of, and I said, why not? He said, I took, took a bunch of them, paid for them, took them, went out in the car, and started drinking them before I, I even thought about what I was doing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that. Um, so that's what happened for you. Exactly. Now, as you, were, as you were starting to lean that way, okay, because sometimes it can happen without us being consciously aware of it, like the like the, the writer that you're talking about. But as you were starting to lean that way in your thinking because of what was going on at home and how you were feeling, and even though you're working in AA program, typically what we suggest to other men and women is take that to your sponsor before it gets you into trouble, take it into a meeting, do something with it along the lines of working the steps around or whatever it is you need to do so you can deal with that other situation. Maybe maybe it's not taking a drink, but it's the insanity that yeah. precedes that drink. Did you share that feeling with a sponsor or with any close trusted friend in the program or that did you completely check out from AA with that thinking? No, not at all. I, uh, yeah. Uh, one of my defects of character is isolation. I see. Um, I, I think in my, until I got back here, mm -hmm. In 2016, I'd never call my sponsor. Mm. I'd get together, hey, have, let's have lunch. We, mm -hmm. I'd talk, talk to him some regularity. But if something was bothering me, I never did that. Really? I, my brain just uh, couldn't get there. Plus, that instant in which I had flipped. Right. Um, on the other side of the flip, there was no talk to anybody. You know, I'm just going to do it. Just going to uh, do it. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, that's been a problem. Since I've been back here, I've recognized – 
that and uh, the sponsor program. The, the sponsor I have today is uh, turned out to be one of my, my best friends, and we talk. We, you know, I have actually called him when I first got separated from my family. Uh, uh, I'd send emails and you know try to explain different things. Um, they kept getting worse, and I finally, after a year, got smart enough to call Dan. Before I sent the email, yeah. in every case, he'd say, the first answer is don't. Yeah. Erase all of that. And he just, uh, you know, that that's that's critical because this compartmentalized thinking that we all have oh, yeah. really is frightening. And it, uh, it can cause you to just do things that you'd never, ever w- want to do. I'm, I'm curious about how you were thinking about your AA program while you were out there doing the other thing. Well, how did you justify it to yourself, but still stay sober through it while while being out there engaging in the other behavior? I never had the urge to drink while I was in the midst of uh, the other behavior. Really? Um, but the simple answer to your question is I just never thought about it. Huh. I just, I mean, I the sexual acting out events mm-hmm. um, were events that had nothing to do with the uh, I wasn't drinking there. I actually didn't have, have, have an interest in drink. The person I was with might have something to drink. I, I never had the risk of uh, of having that. Um, yeah. So it, it literally was a whole different Bob out there in this particular situation yeah. who uh, got sober and stayed sober. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I've had events in which I'd love to have that sensation between the second and third scotch that I had when I was drinking. Right. But I've ne- it's never taken me to the point where... I'd even give any thought to it. It's just so whatever the urge to drink or the desire to drink that you might have had during that period of time when you were engaging in the other behavior, it was the other behavior that was fat satisfying that desire. And oh urge. yeah, no, exactly. Th- these were s- secret events. I mean, it was it was there was all kinds of uh, adrenaline rush to uh-huh. to what you were doing and how it was. There was a, all kinds of risks. Yeah, sure. Uh, that you were taking. I'd say that, but. And suppose I'm in Toronto and the family thinks I'm in Houston yeah. and I have a heart attack. Huh. You know? <laughs> There's absolutely <laughs> no reason I could ever be in Toronto. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess. So, that. How do you, so there's all kinds of things that could have happened. I was, I say my higher power has been looking after me for my whole life because there's just so much of this stuff is so, is so frightening. My my wife today, I we have every now and then. She just said, "I just can't understand how you got away with all that stuff." Yeah, you know, you ever do that to me, and I'm going to beat you to pulp. <laughs> when did she become aware of that? Who's that? Your wife. When did she become aware of your other behavior, or did she know about it all along? When we got divorced, I see. Uh, okay. She knew a little bit, but no sense of the extent of it. Until we got to, uh, I, I revealed it all to my son. Right. He wanted to do a, a, a giant forensic accounting on all the accounts and all oh. of that. And I just said, uh, Chris, look, you'll spend a fortune. You'll never learn anything from right. it. Uh-huh. I'll tell you what's going on. I said, here, all right, here's the truth. You really want to know everything? Here, here it is. So once he and your wife knew all that, that became the precipitating factor oh, yeah, yeah. In, in the divorce. That behavior goes on between let's say, 2004 and until the time that you get back to Houston? Uh, that, that behavior stopped in 2015. Okay. Uh, uh, just because I it stopped it. Uh-huh. You know, some of the people I was carrying on with were getting old, too. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, you were still going to AA during that all that time? Yes, yes. Okay, so you never stopped going to AA. You never did, You never stopped calling your sponsor. You, you still had a relationship in the program? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't call the sponsor very much at all. I reduced my meeting attendance. It went from uh, two or three times a week to once a week to a couple times a month. Yeah. And it's easy to, you can say that precipitated uh, maybe the collapse, but the but the problem was the meetings in California that I had really enjoyed when right. I got out there. Uh-huh. And I actually went around and started looking for other meetings. Sure. Oh, there's, there's some phenomenal meetings right. out there of, uh, of all kinds. But uh, mm-hmm. the other problem is is that the, the good ones turned out to be an, an hour's drive away. So yeah. you know, an hour on the L.A. freeway yeah, both ways yeah. kind of negates most of what you got. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. But did, did the fact that you were engaging in that other behavior – in what way did that affect how you were presenting yourself in meetings? Let's say not sharing about it, but how were you feeling sitting in a meeting of AA 
on an ongoing basis during that period of time. Did that compartmentalization enter the picture right there where you were able to say, I'm all in with AA, this is all about me staying sober, and the other behavior was in a compartment elsewhere? Yeah, exactly. Yes, huh. very much so. I would think from time to time, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this, something like that. But in AA, there was no emerging compulsion I see. to stop the behavior. The, because I literally, while they, they were effectively connected because sure. they're both, Bob, uh, engaging in addictive behavior, uh, I never put them together enough for that yeah, to happen. That's interesting. I never got to the point where I'd say, I, I got to stop acting out sexually because uh, I'm uh, a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, I get that. So thus the the related importance, let's say, of the other types of 12-step programs that there, that there are for the other addictions that you're talking about. Now, now let me say something else, too. They're, they're acting out, all, all of those behaviors how they play out and what it's all about. I've come to believe that mm-hmm. almost every addiction is is alike, that the, the, the effect of the substances or the behavior might be something. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I've come to believe that in the things that I was addicted to, the, the, the obsessive compulsive behaviors, mm-hmm. at the peak of it, the psychological impact on my brain was exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. It was exactly the same. I yeah. used to run marathons, as I said, and I... If I went out for a hard 20-mile run and came home, you know, I'd get, I'd get on the floor, I'd put my feet up for, uh-huh. for a while. The, the, the euphoria in my brain at that point was exactly the same as that between the second and third scotch. Yeah. It was yeah. the same. Um, all of this addictive behavior was necessary uh, because um, I, I, something's got to quiet this, this rage. This, yeah, I get that. Uh, so, this chaos. So... It's become understood over the last number of years that the part of the brain that addiction acts upon is acted upon in the same way by alcohol or drugs or gambling or spending or sex or whatever else. That's the common place within our being that the addiction exists. When you came back in 2016, I remember seeing you shortly after you came back. And since that time, you've become well engaged in the program. I see you at meetings all the time. Have you been able to sufficiently rebuild your life here in Houston since that time? Oh, absolutely. Um, in what ways? My life today, I have uh, remarried mm-hmm. um, somebody I, I knew uh, way back. Uh, I have built a network. Um, I I still miss my old family because I've I built that thing up as this for fifty years yeah. you know, as this phenomenal family that I always wanted in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, but I've come to be able to accept the fact that it may never there may never be connections there yeah. in any way. That's sad. That's really sad. I have found things to do here since I spent my career as a very aggressive business type. And I made calls and had clients, and mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've I've learned to put myself out there, yeah, um, and pursue something, mm-hmm. regardless of how bad or how tough it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been willing to, you know, to approach different folks, make suggestions. Uh, I've gone to a couple of rehab places and say, look, uh, I'd love to uh, conduct a program with you guys as mm-hmm. follows. I said, you know, we uh, in the program we stop drinking, we get sober, we. We uh, go to meetings, we get a sponsor, we work the steps, um, and we do all of that. And, so, and then all of a sudden, six months later, we wake up one day and say, okay, now what? Now what? Yeah. How do I build a life that will sustain my um, sobriety? Yeah. And I said, uh, I have some sense of that. That's yeah. what I tried to do in 2015, and that's what brought me to Houston. But I, I, uh, I have a sense of that, and I think uh, I'd love to get a group of guys in a meeting you know, in a rehab or something like that, that mm-hmm. have been there for a while, and and uh, and and talk about that. Um, yeah, I get that. It's it's different for everybody, but there's there's ways to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can't sustain a lifetime sobriety unless you've built your life and to, to be satisfying enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, to to enjoy it, and this is all kinds of things. Yeah. And just look at all the guys in this in these rooms, and how they. Uh, deal with it the things you hear the things yeah. that happen in some fashion um, yeah 
Well, it sounds like you've had some great awakenings. Sure, you, you have some regrets about the past, but it sounds like maybe you've moved past those to the last five years, five, six years now where your life has gotten considerably better than it had been for a long time. I am at the point now, Howard, where I firmly believe uh, while I have no forward calendar, you know, I right. spent my whole career always <laughs> things in the future. No, nothing's, you know, no forward calendar whatsoever. That things will show up. Yeah. Um, I really firmly believe this that the, the opportunities will show up that I can do. Yeah. And these are just activities like you're doing here yeah. with this. And yeah. So I actually went to the old uh, men's center and uh, talked to the guy who runs that uh-huh. and uh, about uh, doing something. With him. Service work. Conducting programs. It's got to be intellectually challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I I had that uh, reading club up at the uh, Cleveland Federal Prison Mm -hmm. where we read great classics and then talked about them. Yeah. And I said to the guys, I said, look, great literature is all about the human experience. I want you guys to see yourselves in these stories and tell me what you see. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's unbelievable how, you know, the, we would sit around and talk about them. So we're reading The Odyssey. We're reading, you yeah. know, Grapes of Wrath and all these. And these these guys who uh, some of them may never have read a book <laughs> before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, just really enjoying it. So that's a lot of fun. And I, I will find those things to do. Yeah. And you presented something when you first came back to Houston that I was involved in where you had the opportunity to write about something that you're passionate about because you have a PhD in mythology and where you started to explore the connection between mythological stories and the kind of stories that we create within the program. I wondered if you could just give our listeners a little bit of a feel for what that is. It's excellent. Um, Mythology is the study of belief systems. Yes. In ancient societies, uh, uh, belief systems were conveyed through story. Yes. Uh, later on, they're conveyed through treatises and religions and all different kinds of things. But even today, is and 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 every every human being is a story, and it's an aggregation of stories. And the yeah. whole and there are millions and millions of stories of all kinds. Uh-huh. Um, I got this degree that shows how that plays out, what it's all about. Uh-huh. Stories, not ancient uh and it's a myth is not wrong right it's just it's just maybe a story that happened like differently than it was conveyed mm-hmm. so when i came to houston i actually got together with you and uh, um, you asked me to would i write something for the um website and i remember saying oh i don't know about that but i went home and about the next day i said you know it'd be a great idea to to link the hero's journey to our different journeys. Uh-huh. So we started doing that, and it's called The Ultimate Hero's Journey. The hero's journey is uh, an individual, a, a group, community or something, are in distress. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody decides they have to fix it, so they separate themselves from it, and they take this journey into the underworld, and they look at what's coming, they come up with the solution, they come uh-huh. back to the boon that's going to solve everything. Uh-huh. It's behind all of us. Every one of us is a hero's journey in some fashion. Huh. So I started writing these, and yeah. uh, we ended up doing 75 of them. I, yeah. I, I originally thought I couldn't come up with more than 10 or 12, yeah. but it's unlimited uh, how they come up. Paul Young um, and some others uh, uh, have said um, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. Uh-huh. The way to recovery is through the pain. Huh. A lot of great stories, epic stories— you know, start out with a distress. Uh, the uh, Divine Comedy, the Inferno, yeah. starts out where uh, Dante is entering the forest at the darkest point. Mm-hmm. That's where we all start. I mean, we 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 enter this process through uh-huh. this low point in our lives in some fashion. I get it. And we grow into it. And if we we do the work, we do all of it. And we, you know, we got to go down into the underworld. We have uh-huh. to all kinds of different things. But at the end of the day. The sunshine of the spirit is glistening, and you yeah. feel so phenomenal about it. And it's exactly the same thing. I was blown away by how many different stories I could use as that parallel. They are incredible stories, and I've read them all, and and they're brilliant. I just love the way you tie each one of those myths and mythical characters, and you tie it to the work that we do in this program and the journey, the yes. journey that we make as recovering alcoholics. It's a it's a beautiful way to look at sobriety that. I don't know of anybody else who's doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and I no, just... it was a, it was phenomenal. I, I use the example sometimes of the Matrix. Yeah, because everybody's watched the movie The Matrix, and Morpheus, the head of the the uh, uh, rebels, 
uh, gets with Neo, and he said, okay, Neo, red pill and a blue pill. Take yeah. the blue pill, wake up tomorrow morning, believe whatever you want to believe. Take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Mm. We took the red pill. Right. You know, and we began the journey, and then how what Neo has to go through to get to, yeah. to, get yeah. to his, the point where he can effectively uh, challenge the matrix. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's a good way to kind of wrap things up here, Bob. It sounds to me like AA has made a big, big impact in your life. And You know, we, we very few of us realize how significant this really is. Yeah. This, we, we have defined the way an aggregation of the human species can, can be together where every piece is different. Right. It's all things. But for some reason, and in our case, it's to not drink. For some reason, it just it just proliferates and, and grows. Oh, yeah. In some fashion. So it's absolutely unique uh, yeah. in, in, in so many different ways. Yeah. And I, and I love the fact that you're able to illuminate that in a way that sets it right out there in living color. Yeah. And you, you do a beautiful job of that in meetings when you share. I love going to meetings with you. I love you. Thank you. When you left town in 99 or whenever it was you moved yeah. out to California, uh, it's like one week you were there and the next I didn't see anymore. And then when you came back and people said, Bob's back in town, I said, which Bob? They said, well, Bob W. And I thought, oh, what? I know several Bob W's. And then when I found out it was you, I am so glad we've been able to rekindle our yeah. friendship and our meetings together and being able to enjoy the same common sobriety that we find in these rooms. And uh I can't thank you enough for doing this, right. Bob. Fantastic. I love you too, Howard. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Bob W. for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast should be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and other podcast providers. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.